Welcome to The Read Along, a mini book club for your ears, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. I'm your host, Scott. I'm your other host, Anita. And join us on a journey through a good book, one, one chapter, chapter at, at a time. Hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Bonkink and produced by Lisa Pruden, the Well Endowed podcast explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The Edmonton Community Foundation helps people create endowment funds. The podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. You can check it out right now at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Welcome to episode two. One thing we didn't do in episode one, which we usually do when we start a new book and neglected to for some reason uh, this time around, we were so excited to get into that first chapter, is talk about the author a little bit. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Normally we do that in place of our recap. Yeah. And, and we, we completely skipped it. Did not do that. We kind of dove right in. We were so excited. Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, yeah, we, uh, we're we reading Phoenix Extravagant by Yoon Ha Lee. Yoon. Uh, is a uh, an American science fiction and fantasy writer. He's somewhat prolific. Uh, he, he's definitely written some other stuff, um, including uh, an entire trilogy, the Machineries of Empire trilogy, uh, between 2016 and 2018, um, and uh, numerous, numerous short stories as well. Ooh. Uh, too, too many to go through here. And uh, it is, I think, perhaps worth noting that uh, Yoon Ha Lee is a trans man. Cool. Which clearly informs some of the the characters and themes in this novel. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think it is worth saying. Well, our protagonist is non-binary. Yeah. Which is, I, I have to say, kind of refreshing. Uh, yeah. It's it's different. It's something we haven't seen. Yeah. It's it's not very common yet in, in literature. And it's nice. I like it. Obviously, uh, Korean mythology is informing this novel. Oh, worth, strongly. Worth mentioning as well, Yoon Ha Lee is Korean-American. Yep, that makes and, sense. And did live in South Korea for some time. Cool. Actually went to school there for a while. So. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, so obviously there's there's a lot of life experience informing this novel. And as is often the case, worth mentioning where our author is coming from so that that helps inform our read a little bit. So Yeah. Yeah. So our apologies for putting it in the second episode instead of the first. Yeah. You, I mean, we try to in the first. I'm sure we've missed it a couple times in the past as well. So with that said, now we'll do a brief recap of chapter one of our novel. <laughs> Uh, in which our protagonist, uh, Jebby, goes and applies for a job at the arts ministry. Uh, this turns out to be a terrible idea, mainly because it flies in the face of everything their sister believes in, and uh, that results in a huge family meltdown and Jebby being kicked out of their house. And that leads us into Chapter 2 of Phoenix Extravagant by Yoon Ha Lee. So Jebby leaves their sister's place. That's where we start. Yeah, basically. Right on the heels of the first chapter. They're hoping that maybe a night's sleep or a little bit of time might help cool down some tempers. So they decide, you know what? I'm going to head over to my friend's place, uh, a fox spirit, who is uh, also openly collaborating with the Rizani government. But uh, locals aren't keen on making enemies with a fox spirit. 
Right? That seems like a bad idea. Yeah. So uh, so they kind of let it slide. Also worth noting, apparently Hawk was the one who put a bug in Jebby's ear about the controversial name change. So, yeah, Hawk clearly has influence on Jebby is where I'm going with this. Oh, sorry. I misunderstood what you were saying. Yes, it was Hawk's uh, suggestion that Jebby do the name change. Yeah. Not that Hawk was suggesting it was controversial. No. It was controversial to Bonsunga. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, a little confused. I'm with you now. As Jebby makes their way to Hawk's place, they uh, consider how much safer the streets seem under Razane rule. Uh, everything is well lit. Uh, some areas are even apparently wired for electricity, though not where Jebby lives. Uh, apparently electricity would be an unimaginable luxury. Being able to paint at all hours, whether the sun is up or not. My goodness. Crime is also apparently down because of the automata, because they operate at all hours, unlike regular polices. It's true. So... They can just they can just go without sleep. But they also operate with human handlers. Oh, but a human handler can go off and on shift, right? Yeah, that's true. Basically, like the regular police force. Well, there are there are day shifts and night shifts. Yeah, but it's just one person between the day shift and the night shift. The rest of the the troop can just go forever. Oh yeah, because they're machines? Question mark. I think so. Again, we, we still don't know too much. We're assuming they're machines. Yeah. I'm sure we'll get there. Yeah. Jebby decides on the way, you know what? If I'm going to ask this big favor of my friend Hawk, I should probably bring a gift or something to butter them up a little bit before. Well, and that also falls into like the rules of hospitality and tradition and custom and such. Yeah. And that makes sense. So despite running low on money, they hit up a one-armed bookseller. Um, and we, we get a little bit more texture here. The bookseller is wearing their hair in an asymmetrical cut, apparently the way Jebby is as well. And this is a common style amongst essentially non-binary people in the capital. Oh, really? Uh, that's what it says in the book. I don't know why you're surprised by I, this. I clearly don't remember that or I didn't pick up on it. I remember, what I remember about the bookseller more was the uh, the attitude. Oh, they definitely have an attitude. Right? That's the part that sticks in my head about the bookseller. Yes, one arm. But also that books, despite the fact that uh, Jebby seems to have a little bit of reverence based on what they were shopping for, mm -hmm. the bookseller was like, yeah, these are items for sale. They yeah. are just books. Jebby doesn't quite agree with that, I don't think, based on the reaction. And I don't think a lot of other people would either. See, and the thing that stuck out to me was the fact that the bookseller and Jebby are both living a non-binary lifestyle that the Razane uh, don't necessarily understand, but seem to be okay with. Yeah, it seems harmless, let them kind do of, it. Kind of a live and let live attitude, yeah. Yeah. So after buying a book of poetry, Jebby continues on to Hacks and uh, makes note of the stars. And they think about how Bongsunga taught them about the constellations and stuff. So here is another reference to Huaguk astrology, the second in two chapters, which makes me think the occupation of the old observatory mentioned last chapter is not a minor thing. Right. Because the author keeps drawing our attention to astrology here. Um the Razani are clearly up to something. It has something to do with Haguk's knowledge of the celestial attendants, quote unquote. Yes. Um, who appear to be some kind of gods or major spirits or something. Something well, like that. We're going to put a pin in this because we're going to get back to it when we get to the party later on. Yes. Jebby arrives at Hack's place, the aforementioned party, in fact, to discover yeah. <laughs> that there is a soiree going on. Yeah. Oh, hold on. My friend is having a party. Yeah. And I'm about to crash it. Mostly Razane appear to be in attendance. and Like the vast majority, yeah. I'm pretty sure. And Jebby's like, oh, obviously this is why I was not invited. Not offended. 
Yeah, just like, no. clearly this is not a party for me. Yes. <laughs> but they decide, you know what? I'm going to head it anyway. At worst, I'll be asked to leave. I'll go ask for help somewhere else. At best, I'll be able to find hack, maybe some food, because I still haven't eaten all day. And <laughs> I left that pancake behind? Yeah. Uh, they poke around for hack, see no sign of her, but do see the buffet. Uh, and that is where they are hit up by a rich Rosane woman named Chiaza. I think that's how you say it, yeah. Who asks, what are you up to? Who are you at this party? And very embarrassed, Jebby politely goes to leave and is just like, you know what? I'm at the wrong party. I'll go. And just turns around and bumps directly into yeah, Hack. Smack, smack into her. Uh, who introduces the two of them and then and then politely leads Jebby away and explains, hey, I'm, I'm basically what's going on here is I'm having a networking event for collectors of antiquities. Hack apparently makes a tidy commission hooking buyers and sellers up. Yeah. And so that's essentially what's going on here. Jebby gets taken to a common room by Hack, where they happen to spy an ancient antlered crown from an old dynasty. And Hack's like, yeah, that's real. It's stolen from a shrine. No biggie. Because apparently Razane archaeologists, I'm using quotations, have been plundering ancient Huaguk sites for treasures all over the place because, I mean, it all belongs in a museum, right, Indy? Uh, so no, it's doing no good moldering in in ancient historical sites. Better to be collected and put on display or appreciated by someone who will who will like it more that's a whole separate episode of a whole nother podcast anyway jebby does have a bit of a knee-jerk reaction to this where it's like uh, i i feel kind of gross about this but talks themselves down from it in an interesting way where they're like you know what hacks right it's not doing any good moldering in an ancient shrine or temple somewhere. Maybe it is better that this fantastic art gets appreciated by someone. And I mean, Hack's got to eat. And Okay, I know we're only two chapters in, but this is very much setting the tone of who Jebby is, that they are talking themselves down from this, right? It's It's not my art that they're stealing and selling and ravaging, right? And it's just... It's just some pieces of culture, right? It's not it's not a big deal. Hack's got to do what Hack's got to do. This is the world we live in now, and I should just accept it and carry on. And Jebby is going to keep repeating that to themselves until they believe it. I, I mean, they do kind of believe it, is the truth. Eh, uh, kind of. I think they're talking themselves out of it. So after kind of milling about having a, a little bite to eat at the... Uh... At the banquet, Hack takes Jebby to the kitchen for some tea and kind of leads the conversation to where Jebby can ask for a place to crash for a while. And I say leads the conversation there because I read that Hack suspected what was up from Jump. Oh, probably. Yeah, she's clever, as a fox spirit should be. Indeed. And I I do believe that there was some understanding. Jebby's here because there's been some trouble at home and, and they're here to ask for help. Right. I don't think Jebby's the type to Just crash, crash a party, party yeah. otherwise unless there was something up. And the impression I get from Hack or about Hack at this party is that Hack is very much the kind of person who will play both sides. Well, Hack also clearly believes in dealing in favors. And by doing a favor for Jebby today, Jebby does a favor for Hack tomorrow, right? Absolutely. Hack is, cl- is clearly motivated by enlightened self-interest. Oh, yes. So... Oh, yes. But, yeah, Hack is willing to throw a party for this occupying force to get in good with the folks in charge. But something tells me that uh, Hack isn't quite willing to let go of all of their roots 
You know what I mean? I I genuinely believe that that she's playing both sides uh, for as much benefit to her as she can get. Yeah. And I mean, speaking of benefit to her, the first thing she asks Jebby after saying Jebby can stay is, you're going to help me clean up after this party. So. <laughs> and Jebby's like, of course I am. Yeah. Hack shifts the conversation over to, hey, you applied for that art job. How did that go? And Jebby is like, I think I did really good, honestly. Uh, and this leads their thoughts back to Bungsunga. And we learn a little bit more texture about a traditional Huagugan family. Mm-hmm. As the elder, apparently Bongsunga is kind of responsible for carrying on the family name. In theory, should have remarried at some point in the past after Gia died, but their prospects aren't really good because Gia did die fighting the Razani occupiers. Right. Or at the very least, maybe should have adopted a child to help carry on the family name, but has not done that. And also there's some cost associated with that. There's there's a cost associated with having children. Yeah. We have two kids. They are extremely expensive. They are. Meantime, Jebby is not expected to marry or have children because they're an artist. And the traditional expectation of an artist, or at least a good artist, is that they should be married to their art. Yes. If they are devoted to someone for the rest of their life, their art will suffer. History bears that out. <laughs> so if they want to be a successful artist, they they cannot be in a long-term relationship. Yes. Like Flings are fine. It helps ignite the passions. It inspires art. But you don't get married. You're married to your craft. Yeah. Which is a very interesting cultural thing that they've built into this world. Yeah. I like it. Uh, we also get a fun little tidbit about the art of perspective. <laughs> well, <laughs> while Jebby's admiring some art, apparently it was imported by Westerners, which doesn't surprise me. That That's probably very much in keeping with actual Western and Eastern art in our actual practical history. Yes. Um, Jebby does not care for it. Yes. <laughs> this perspective thing. It's very <laughs> unsettling. Yes. <laughs> Which that just made me laugh because, of course, born and raised here in Canada and the the weird mishmash collection of art includes things like perspective. Well, yes. I was I was taught that in school. Yeah. Like We also learn apparently the older Huagugan rulers had actually forbidden Western visitors. So a lot of the Western influences that are starting to creep into the region are are because of the, the Empire of Razan. Yes who are much more cavalier about dealing with Western influence. So, It's sort of hard not to see global influences as Western influence has been creeping in quite a bit already in this book, you can see, well, with fashions and a little yeah. bit of art and a little bit of design. Uh, and Apparently it's more um, pronounced these days uh, than it was historically, again, because... Huaguk's uh, scholar aristocrats apparently were like, no Westerners in our country, get out. But Jebby even admits that there was some Western influence already creeping in prior to that. Because while Huaguk wouldn't deal directly with Westerners, it was dealing with other nearby powers that were dealing directly with Westerners. So that influence was still coming in, no yeah. matter how hard they were trying to keep it out. Right? It's, yeah. it's hard not to be influenced by your neighbors as the world expands and evolves and grows. Yeah. Right? As your world gets bigger, you, traditions and cultures mesh together. Yeah. That's Meet up and kind of, change and, yeah. Kind of the way it happens. Um, even without imperialism, which is forced cultural hegemony, globalism is going to automatically cause cultures to kind of merge. Yeah. And you're going to get kind of like a, a passive hegemony. Yeah. And that's just Absolutely. kind of the way it goes. Yeah. So we actually kind of segue now to about three days later when the results of the examination are to be posted. And Hack is promising, you know what, we're going to have a celebration after. We'll invite Bongsunga. She may or may not show up, but, you know, 
we'll we'll have a we'll have a thing because you're a great artist. Of course, you're going to get the job. Jebby's like, you know what? I am a great artist. Of course, I'm going to get the job. <laughs> so, of course, they head over to the ministry to see the results, and shockingly, they did not get the job. Yeah, their name is not amongst the five accepted applicants, and that's pretty bad news because they were really depending on this job. Yep, to pay off that debt to that moneylender. Yes. So now <laughs> they're even worse off than they were. They got themselves in debt in order to get a good job to pay off that debt and then move forward. Now they don't have that job. They still have that debt. They're not going anywhere. Oh, and even worse than that, it, just applying for the job uh, strained their relationship with their sister. Right. So now... <laughs> they're, if anything, they're, they're much worse off than before oh, they applied for this job. Considerably. Yeah, this is not good. However, we do know from the little synopsis on the back of the book... Uh, that Jebby does not go to work for the Ministry of Art. They go to work for the Ministry of Armor. So... I mean, we can we can draw an assumption here that Jebby's art was so good that the Ministry of Art was like, oh, no, they're, they're too good for this, and uh, forwarded their information on to a different department where they could be better put to use. Right. And that they will be offered a different job, perhaps next chapter. That is my guess, is that next chapter, this fancy new job comes comes to light. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We'll find out as we move into chapter three, because this is the end of chapter two. Yeah, and that's how chapter two ends, with, hey, you didn't get a job. I have uh, two other things to note Very in good. this chapter. Uh, one is irresponsible speculation, and one is just kind of a general observation. And I think <laughs> I'll start with the general observation. Sure. Jebby spends a lot of time in this chapter making the Razane occupation out to be not that bad, which reads correct to me, because they're very apolitically inclined at the moment. Yes. And for them to be apolitically inclined, it has to be more than just them having been kind of coddled and sheltered by Bong Sunga, which which we believe might be the case from the first chapter. Yes. And we discussed that. But it also means that there has to be an upside to the occupation. And things have improved in some areas. Like Jebby's like, we have electricity now. The streets are safer. Like, ultimately, we just replaced one group of autocratic hierarchs with a different group of autocratic hierarchs because apparently the Huaguk scholar aristocrats weren't really much better. The difference is one is promoting the culture you know and love and the other one is trying to take the culture you know and love. I mean, actively destroying it because uh, Jebby talks themselves down from the one thing that they really do note in this chapter, which is the the plundering of Huaguk's history, culture, and language. Yeah. Like, the Razani are actively pillaging the country of its treasures, mm -hmm. are actively trying to stamp out the language. Mm -hmm. There's bad stuff happening, too, but Jebby is purposefully trying not to pay attention to that. Trying yeah. to look at the silver lining. Yeah. Jebby's attitude here is, well, this is the world I live in. I'd better learn to adapt to it. The problem with that is that they are excusing a bunch of things which probably shouldn't be excused. Yeah, including potential atrocities, because we right. get a little bit of hot goss at the Razane soiree about, uh, like, a group of rebels being just murdered. Which I think Jebby is, like, willfully ignoring. As opposed to a bunch of things simply going over their head, I think they are, like, purposely choosing to ignore. Yeah, that's someone else's problem. Those people are resisting the occupation. They should be they should be just accepting it. They should be accepting the new reality. Yeah. If they got themselves killed, that's on them. Which I mean is clearly an attitude Bong Sunga would not be happy with because Bong Sunga's wife died doing yeah. exactly that. Exactly. Resisting the occupation. Oh, so. there's a whole there's a whole lengthy bit uh and even in my notes I I noted it that Bong Sunga does not like hack. 
because, at all. Because Hack's a collaborator. Yeah. Like a gleeful, willing collaborator. Yeah. Well, but this is me going back and forth. Hack's still got to eat. Yeah. Right? Hack needs to look out for themselves as well. So, and this is her way of doing it. Bong Sunga might be looking at this, and I mean, this is this is also irresponsible speculation because we're not in Bong Sunga's head. Bong no. Sunga might be looking at this as a very black and white situation. Yes. Whereas, I mean, Hack understands shades of gray. That's so. that's what I think. And and certainly that seems to be where Jebby's sitting at the moment too. Like, well, yeah, there's some downside, but there's a silver lining. Like things have improved in some areas. The Romans brought roads. <laughs> Say what you will, the trains ran on time. Uh, no, and that nonsense. That was that was actually propaganda. The trains in fascist Italy did not run on time. It was terrible <laughs> there. Um, but anyway, th- this again, the party, the soiree, some of the juicy tidbits that uh, Jebby hears leads me to my irresponsible speculation. I love it. Let's go. Uh, because in addition to the uh, the massacre of rebels, Jebby overhears some Rosani socialites talking about going to the moon. That the Ministry of Transportation is trying to build a rocket ship or something and actually go to the moon. And they mentioned that there's people living on the moon. That's apparently where these celestial attendants live. Well, I was going to say, not not people. Well, they might be people. Spirits I... are, Hack is a people and she's a fox spirit. Okay, fair enough. Celestials, anyway, whether yeah. or not they are people. There are beings living on the moon and the Empire of Razan wants to go there. And I was like, oh, the Empire of Razan wants to conquer heaven. yeah. And that tracks. <laughs> it does. I don't know if that's actually what they want to do, because I don't know what the significance of the moon is. Here's the thing, though. The, and it would track with the Empire of Razan's MO that we've come to understand so far in just two chapters. Because mm-hmm. Razan was in Huaguk before they occupied Huaguk. They're the kind of imperial colonizers who show up, start trade, maybe build a trading outpost, arm that trading outpost... And, you know, then (laughs) there's more soldiers around. And then, well, now we've just kind of taken over. And that's imperialism 101, really. Uh, (laughs) It's it's happened often in our history. That's how a lot of Africa got conquered. So it would track that, you know, they'd send a rocket to the moon and open up trade relations with the moon. And now we're going to build an outpost on the moon. And now we're going to send soldiers up to defend the outpost. And then, oh, we've accidentally conquered the moon. Hooray. Hooray. Oh, I mean, it's almost certainly hubris, but it very much tracks with with their imperialism. But you're building all of this over some overheard party gossip. Yeah, again, right? Irresponsible speculation, but it would track, and it, it would. would, and it would create a reason for why they were so interested in that particular observatory, why they're so interested in astrology, why the author keeps pointing out the astrology, right? Right, like. But there's also. The same party gossip had someone complaining, like, why? Why are we bothering to go to the moon? There's nothing up there but moon rabbits. Thinking that it's not real, there's nothing up there. So I don't know. Just because the average Razane doesn't understand why the authorities are interested in the moon doesn't mean that the authorities aren't clearly interested (laughs) in the moon, which means they know something we don't. Fair enough. So, I mean, it could just be a precious resource that's up there. Who knows? But mm. it certainly it certainly seems like, assuming that this celestial pantheon lives on the moon, it sure sounds like they want to conquer the Inhumans. Seems like a big step. Like, how big is the is the Razani em- Empire? Uh, I get the impression pretty big at the moment. I mean, they're in what administrative district fourteen. Yes. That implies to me that they've conquered at least thirteen others. Well, twelve <laughs> others, assuming they're administrative district number one, right? So right. All I'm saying is. 
Maybe try to conquer the world before you try to conquer a different planet. I mean, if you conquer the different planet, though, that gives you a better chance of conquering this planet, right? I Maybe? You've got a whole outpost out in space that you can then launch sorties from. Can you, though? They might just be trying to beat the Westerners there, too, for all we know. Maybe. We know they haven't conquered the West. Presumably. Well, they wouldn't refer to them as Westerners, I think, if they were Razani. That's true. And, and it's been implied that the Razani uh, acquired much of their advanced technology from Westerners. Yeah. So. so, I don't know. Maybe they're allied with the West. I uh, don't get that. The, the prevailing story, as I recall from chapter one, is that they stole the technology from the Westerners. So I don't know that they're necessarily on the best of terms. Okay, fair enough. But anyway, we're going to start going long here if we keep going. So, Well, besides, we've reached the end of the chapter and it's nothing left for us to do but crazy irresponsible speculations. Yeah, we don't know what's going to happen. Which we love to do, but we should stop doing that for a while and let's maybe proceed forward with the actual written text in the book. Yeah, so we will proceed... Into chapter three, Indeed. Uh, which you'll want to read up on in time for next week. And uh, in the meantime, you know, there are lots of wonderful podcasts here on the Alberta Podcast Network. Uh, if you are looking for adventure, there's certainly great listens to, mm-hmm. to help you facilitate that, including our own podcast, uh, several movie podcasts. But if you want to hear an adventure happening real time, oh boy, is there a new podcast for you. In the small prairie town of Hillview. In the center of town, Hillview's single traffic light shifts from red to green which has no effect whatsoever as Main Street is, as usual, completely devoid of traffic. Bored teenagers use their modified hoverboards to sneak into other dimensions. An abandoned cityscape lives half buried in the sand. Welcome to the multiverse. It's dangerous. The entire right side of her body looks like uh, just a glitched out mess. It's stupid. And then I immediately uh, turn around and punch him. It's got parent groups in a panic. Just don't do it, okay? Hugs, not slugs. All right. Thank you. (laughs) And it's the coolest thing ever. This is Slug Blaster. Well, your funeral and ours, I guess. And then Angus points and fires. There's an explosion. A burst of slime goes flying. Your reign of terror has come to an end. It it kind of scrambles and glitches out. And you can see that this this is like a smoking crater where your ray gun hit. (laughs) Sick. (laughs) Quantum Kickflip. A Slug Blaster actual play podcast, part of the Alberta Podcast Network. Quantum Kickflip. Uh, My co-host over at uh, my other Alberta Podcast Network podcast, I have some notes, uh, Liam Kreswick's other podcast. (laughs) You can hear him and some of his fun and funny friends uh, doing a a live play of of their game. And props to whoever came up with that title, because that's a great title. Yeah. Quantum Kickflip. It's it's just fun to say, even. Uh, you can find them and all of the other member podcasts of the network at albertapodcastnetwork.com. Uh, you can, of course, find them probably on your podcatcher of choice. While you're there, it's probably where you're catching our pod. Probably. So you can uh, give us a little rating and review. That would be great. Would be. You can also reach out to us on social media. Absolutely. We have the standard collection. We are on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Goodreads. We are at the read-along on most of those. Yeah, um, just a quick note about Goodreads. Um, It's been getting a little bit of kind of bad press lately because it was acquired by Amazon. There's a lot of people who are a little leery about it because of that. Um, I'm I'm currently looking at some alternatives, uh, and I will keep you posted on that. We might migrate away from Goodreads, but for the time being, we are still there. Yeah, for now, we're still there until until more comes to light. Yeah. You can also reach out to us on email. We are thereadalong at gmail.com. And with that said, as always, we love you very much.
very much, and we'll see you next time. For new jobs, we hope. Thank you for joining us on The Read Along with your hosts, Anita and Scott Bourgeois, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. All Read Along music is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Cover art is by Aaron Beaver. Be sure to join us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Read Along, and check out our group on Goodreads.com.